On this week's Behind the Idea, Mike and I visit our friendly local mall REIT, Simon Property Group. We break down an argument by Julian Lin that the company is facing 2008 share pricing that doesn't reflect its current strength. I reflect on my own misses in the REIT sector and highlight an important metric that investors often overlook. They had free cash flow, right? They had their operating cash flow was bigger than their CapEx. What they didn't have was any money left over after they paid out a dividend. In fact, they were both net borrowers after they paid out their dividend. Mike, meanwhile, challenges the narrative that Simon is truly best of breed while also challenging much of the retail sector. If any investors are looking at Simon and saying it's best of breed, I was surprised to see the amount of Dillard's and Best Buy. I don't think Best Buy should really reassure anybody at this point. Mall REITs have been a surprisingly passionate battleground on Seeking Alpha, reflective of our changing physical and digital landscape, as well as the high yields that the firms pay. That said, is there value still left between their four walls? We discuss on Behind the Idea. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Mike Taylor. And I'm Daniel Schwartzman. This week, we're going to the mall, the fanciest mall of them all. We're talking Simon Property Group, ticker symbol SPG. Seeking Alpha author and loyal behind the idea listener and former guest. Julian Lin wrote up Simon Property Group as a buy, saying the company is trading at 2008 levels. Ugh. Even though this is not 2008. Still, the death of the mall has been a bit of a running investment theme for at least two or three years. Got to worry about Amazon, all that. So, is 2008 the right lens through which to look at SPG? And does this swanky read make sense as a long idea today? We'll discuss on Behind the Idea. But before we begin, Behind the Idea is the podcast that looks at what makes great investment analysis work based on ideas from the SeekingAlpha.com ecosystem. Neither Daniel nor I have any positions in any uh, companies, stocks we plan to discuss. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. And finally, shout out to Julian Lin. This is by request. He asked us to cover some mall REITs and we don't like to disappoint our listeners. So if you have a request, Please email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com. Leave a comment below the podcast article or find another way to get a hold of me or Daniel. Okay, Daniel, let's get into it. What is the core of Julian's investment thesis? Well, I would say the core of Julian's investment thesis is that Simon Property Group is sort of a best of brand mall REIT has a malls, the realist, the mall REIT sector, the malls often get rated as a properties, B properties or C properties, really rare that they go below C, but the Simon property is an a mall property REIT. They have sold off due to concerns over the future of retail. Julian specifically cites Abercrombie and Fitch's recent earnings call, which led to a 5% drop on the news. And his argument is that this is a company that is trading now at a yield that they haven't seen since 2008. In 2008, they had to, even though they had a conservative balance sheet at the time, they still had to cut their dividend and pull a couple of different balance sheet levers. But he's arguing that they've learned their lesson. They're really conservatively run. They have a strong balance sheet. And so the, so it's essentially two things. This is a strong company that should be okay, even in adverse circumstances. And they are best of breed. And the, the secular thesis of the death of the mall is implicitly wrong. And mall REITs are going to, the good ones are going to be able to redevelop and redeploy their real estate with better tenants 
rather than the Abercrombie Fitches or whatever other 90s era mall brands there are. They'll be able to re-rent those spaces, and that's basically the case. That's his argument, I think. Frankly, it's about time Abercrombie and Fitch had some (laughs) troubles, right? We grew up, we went to high school in the late 90s, and I don't know about you, but I was not an Abercrombie and Fitch (laughs) type, so... (laughs) You know, if they had a tough yes, order, you know, I'm not I'm not crying about it. It's fine. <laughs> also I, that LFO song, man. Oh that yeah. Was, you remember that song? That was awful. That was awful. Yeah. Our listeners probably don't remember that song or want us to talk about it. So <laughs> let's figure out. So okay. One of the things that stuck out to me about this, I think the key things for us to consider are the balance sheet. Julian talks about the balance sheet as being particularly strong. I found it, first of all, I'm not a REIT guy, so to speak. I am not super, super deep in this sector, but I think we need to sort of test a little bit what we think of the balance sheet, first of all. So I tried to look at the financial statements from kind of a high level and get a sense of what SPG is all about. One thing is the nature of the properties. So they have around 200 properties in the U.S. and some international presence. Julian mentions that they have a unsecured revolving credit facility, and he sort of mentions that they can tap this credit facility if they run into liquidity issues. And one thing I reacted to when I saw that was, well, what do we think about a company when it's tapping its credit facility? My impression is that companies don't tap their credit facilities unless they're in deep trouble. It's not actually necessarily a very comforting thing uh, from an from a common investor's standpoint, are you with me on this? Do you do you think a credit facility is something we should look at? I just think that a lot of asset-heavy companies have these arrangements, and I'm not sure that it's a particularly valuable thing to look at when you're looking at the balance sheet. Yeah, I don't think I would look at it as a great fallback in any case. I think a credit facility to afford them some flexibility as cash flows vary for a given company, that seems reasonable. But the idea of if things really go bad, we can borrow on our credit facility to buy back some of our debt maturity. I'm not sure that's really how you want to stack up the balance sheet or that that would reassure me as a a long investor. And then on these debt maturities, I don't think we got a very detailed breakdown of what's coming due and when. I looked in the 10K a little bit and I didn't see anything that seemed out of the ordinary or cataclysmic, but I think I would have preferred to be able to see a little bit more about the roadmap for the balance sheet going forward and how that maps to kind of how SPG is generating cash well and i think it also what what it caused to mind just the discussion about the credit facility is that you have to analyze what sort of problem simon property group is facing right now and that's where the comparison to 2008 i'm not sure i would find super reassuring either for a couple reasons first because as julia mentions even though the company's felt that they were running things conservatively. They still had to cut their dividend, issue a stock dividend, issue equity, do a bunch, pull a bunch of levers to just kind of keep things going. So the fact that maybe they're more conservative now, I don't know, doesn't really reassure. Right. We call those balance sheet backflips in my house. I don't know what you call them <laughs> in your house. but And it's just, that's just me, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I... I yeah. I sort of you don't have it. a name for that? You don't have a name for stock <laughs> dividend plus issuance of shares at, at 2008 lows? 
I just feel uh, I just feel like I'm not with it, but I don't. I don't. I'm sorry. So yeah, I I'm not fully on board with this, and I think the mechanics of the way that Simon Property Group works. So they own the properties. Stop me if I get anything wrong here. They own the properties. They lease properties to tenants. These are high-end tenants, allegedly. They're in a mall, so they have... And if you look at the properties, right? So there's one at Pentagon City, which is near where I live in D.C. And it does have a different feel from a normal mall. It's like bigger. It seems cleaner, potentially. There are fancy stores there. Uh, So I think there is something to the argument that the Simon Property Group has a sort of different customer experience. Shout out to the Burlington Mall, which is a Simon Property Group. Well, and we're going to talk famous. a little bit about <laughs> some of the some of those malls that Simon has in its portfolio that may or may not be fully consistent across the board. Anyway, but so like I buy maybe the sense that there is a that SPG is going to could do slightly better because they have richer clients in the case of a recession or economic slowdown uh, because your marginal propensity to spend is higher the wealthier you are. But, you know, 2008, certainly it's a bit, the argument doesn't work super well for me on a couple levels. First of all, that was like the worst recession since the Great Depression, right? So, and the consumer really did get whacked. They were over-levered, had to delever, and it was a mess. So saying that now is not 2008 feels a little bit like, I think we need to look at whether the market is really saying that this feels like 2008 for SBG right now, or whether there's something else going on. That gets into the secular argument, which I think is the death of retail. Right, because I would argue that it, actually 2008 is a better situation for Simon than now to some degree. I, I, I'm not trying to say that as a doomsday thing, but just in terms of... No, a, the other the re- way, yeah. The recession hasn't happened yet, so if they're... And they are growing, by the way. They're growing, they have net income, and we'll get into net income versus funds from operations and other things later, but they are growing, they are still putting out positive numbers, And so I don't want to overstate their position, but nevertheless, the economy hasn't turned yet. And so for them to be doing this when the economy hasn't turned, unless your upside is that now they won't have to deal with higher interest rates if the economy doesn't really pick up, like that's not super encouraging. And then, yeah. And then the question of 2008, Obviously, for real estate, there were some fundamental things going on there. It wasn't just some big cycle. It was a huge deal. But I don't think that was really the case with commercial real estate per se. And right now, what we're looking at is a secular, apparently secular shift in how people purchase things and where they spend their time. You know, again, if you go back to the 90s, it was very common to just go to the mall to hang out and that's there was the movie mall rats and everything else and that's not happening now and so what is the appropriate way for buying stuff what is the what is the value of this land and i think we're just i'm i'm i put in my notes i I was reminded of our discussion with dividend streamer about kmi and at some point dividend streamer said you know, the pipelines that Kinder Morgan has might actually be more valuable in the future. And I, you know, I said, hold on a sec, how could that be? And his argument was basically that the pipeline itself doesn't deteriorate. And if the demand to pump gas through it goes higher, then in theory, it's more valuable to have the pipeline, which fine, there's an argument there. But to me, it feels the opposite here. It feels like if there's not demand to sell stuff to people in large conglomerations of stores, then you better find another use for that real estate. And otherwise, the value of that real estate does seem like it would decline. Trampoline gyms and axe throwing. So hot. Like, do you, so do you hot want, right now. Yeah. Uh, 
I'm not thrown an axe or jumped on a trampoline yet. So yeah, I, I agree. I think that that secular versus secular thing is sort of the key element here. We're not at the bottom of a recession cycle. So if the economy turns, then we're in trouble there. And, but I also want to game out the other way. If so, the market's telling us that there are apparently severe issues if you go by dividend yield. And I'm not sure that it's we're in good shape just waving them off by saying that management learned its lesson from 2008. Potentially, there's a different lesson at play here since we're not at a recession low. We have Amazon and the death of retail and all that comes along with it instead. Also, I'm not convinced that the balance sheet is really all that conservative. So here's a high level thing, stepping out on the line. Here's what the 10K says with respect to Simon Property Group's debt covenants. We must comply with the covenants contained in our financing agreements that limit our ratio of debt to total assets or market value as defined. For example, the operating partnerships line of credit and indentures for operating partnerships debt securities contain covenants that restrict the total amount of debt of the operating partnership to 65% or 60% in relation to certain debt of total assets as defined under the related agreements and secured debt to 50% of total assets. According to Seeking Alpha's financial data, long-term debt for the company as a whole is 72% of total assets. So that doesn't mean that they're risking triggering any particular debt covenants, but I think it's interesting to see that on a high level, there's some potential that according to a benchmark set within some loan agreements the company already has, there's there's a lot of debt if you just sort of take that fundamentally. And then the second thing I thought was interesting from the 10K was the idea that leases can be discharged or amended in bankruptcy. So this particular scare around the prospects of stores going bankrupt or the prospects of retail companies having having trouble, Simon Property Group is not, those cash flows are not protected in case of a severe issue, in the case of a Bankruptcy, and we talked about this a little bit with KMI as well as like the take or pay contracts. It's fine to have things locked in under contract, but if the underlying cash flows aren't being produced, it doesn't matter, and you're in trouble. And so I think that's that ties into sort of the the next section of Julian's argument, which is kind of this concept that turning over tenants is okay because you just upgrade the tenants and then they and charge them more charge higher rents to the new tenants and i find that a bit suspect because certainly in some states of the world that could go the other way you actually get worse tenants or tenants can't pay you so i find it a little concerning this concept that the only direction is up did you have a similar feeling? Yeah, I think what's interesting there, I think there's some where that makes sense is retail is always a tough industry and stores are turning over. And so there's no doubt that you're going to have some change in what a hot store is, right? So that makes sense. But Julian talked about Abercrombie and Fitch. And when I went to our news page, I saw another post about the death of brick and mortar retail, where the, the quote was already more than 7,150 store closures this year have been announced by U.S. retailers, including Dress Barn, CVS, Party City, and Pier One Imports, according to CoreSight Research. This was from a post this week. So, and of the names on there, the one that really would scare me is CVS because pharmacies would seem, and I think Walgreen, for example, tra- trades relatively cheaply right now too. And I had them falling, but pharmacies would seem like more of a 
oh yeah, I need to just go to the pharmacy, get something convenient, quick, whatever. It would seem like you would need that in-person need. And if those are closing, it seems to me like this is more than just your run-of-the-mill businesses going in and going out. And given that the fundamental thing is that you want to be able to sell the space to somebody, you want to be able to rent it out to somebody, and the fewer people out there, fewer businesses out there looking to sell, the harder it's going to be for you to raise your rates. It's harder it's going to be for you to fill the tenant, the the plots, the stores, etc. And so, you know, and you joked about the axe throwing and the trampoline jumping, whatever else. And I think that's those sorts of things have been part of Mall Reed bull theses for the past couple of years as well. The idea of repurposing the space, but escape rooms are already kind of played out, aren't they? Like, it, there's only so Don't much. Don't you dare! <laughs> I go to escape rooms all the time. <laughs> a lovely time. It's wonderful. It's a great you, team bonding you, activity. I've never done you, one. I've never done one. Laser tag. I, oh, my wife did laser tag recently and had a really good time. I'm thinking about doing laser tag. It seems awesome. But laser tag's enough. not new. Anyway, but I no, want I want to stick on this this idea of you're right. You're it's no your argument that oh, we'll just get better customers if our old customers churn out doesn't really work that well if all your customers start closing stores. Like, just build a new store in our mall. It's fine, and then we'll be fine. And they're like, we're we're shutting down stores. What are you talking about? We can't. You want to charge us more rent? We can't pay the rent on the things we already have. So... I think that's the what the that's clearly what the market's seeing, right? They're seeing this sort of softness in retailers and they're punishing the people who are upstream from that retail experience. I also wanted to stick with this idea that Simon Property Group is really well insulated from the type of store closures you mentioned. And they have in their 10K a kind of breakdown of the different properties. And I don't think necessarily that it says uniformly great, like my Pentagon City mall. I think you should be bullish on that because Amazon's coming and it looks great. Great job, Pentagon City. Looks fantastic. Tons of traffic through. There's a metro stop. Wonderful. But, or go ahead. I'm I'm just waiting to hear who you're going to trash on. I just pulled up the properties list and I'm just looking forward to this. So, gosh, we're going to alienate some listeners probably. <laughs> uh, Bloomington, Indiana residents and listeners, I'm sorry, but there's a different type of customer profile for Bloomington than there is from Washington, D.C. So oh, if, your idea of, if your idea of fun is Bloomington, I understand. But according to the 2017 census, the median household income in Bloomington is $33,000. The same census has Pentagon City as $131,000 for median household income. So you're dealing with distinct customer bases there. And then it also has the list of, of individual stores. And these are the stores that Simon Cro- Property group is choosing to highlight for investors. So at Bloomington, we have, yeah, Macy's, Target, Dick's Sporting Goods, Bed Bath & Beyond, Ulta, and Fresh Time. So those are not the same as a Nordstrom or what I would consider to be the sort of linchpins of a high-end luxury mall experience like they don't list a tesla dealership there or like anything like that so my point here is that i think if any investors are looking at simon and saying it's best of breed i was surprised to see the amount of dillard's and best buy i don't think best buy should really reassure anybody at this point i went into a best buy and asked if they sold a part to charge my smart watch. And they said no, because they offer it on Amazon. Like they don't stock things that people 
need that are related to the products they sell. So my point is, are these properties that safe? I don't necessarily think they're that safe from death of retail, and they don't even look that great in terms of if we have a recession and you know consumers have to slow down their spending. I'm, I'm concerned. Bloomington concerns me. Uh, just not a fan of Indiana basketball. And just we'll do a, just a couple others so Bloomington doesn't feel so picked on. Greenville, South Carolina, where another property is median income forty one thousand, and at Albuquerque, medium income fifty thousand. Say the point. The point is, there's a range here. It's not fair to just say that everything looks like Pentagon City, which is, you know, excellent, perfect, and great. And uh, <laughs> unlike these other towns, which are not so. I've got your back, Greenville. I like Greenville. Okay. Good town. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but if, if I'm totally wrong about this and Bloomington has a totally kick-in Simon Property Mall or Greenville or Albuquerque do, then let us know and we'll, we'll make sure to, I'll make amends. I'll, I'll eat, eat crow on that. I mean, I think regardless, yeah, I mean, I think it's just, it's, I think you have to sort of really look at that secular setting and say, where is the evidence of successful redevelopment? Where is the evidence that Simon is, when we, you know, lean back on these A properties, B properties, like what, what else can we say about that? Simon trades for something like 13 times funds from operation on a trailing 12 month basis, which, you know, you can, I think REITs historically have traded similar to the way the S and P would trade on PE. Well, again, we'll get into the metrics in a second, but the, I think you need evidence that there's something different about these stores, that there's something different. You know, I think one of the things you see in the, shopping REIT or mall REIT space is the talk of shopping centers or community centers, sort of open air, uh, pedestrian downtown sort of real estate that you can, that is a little bit trendier, is a little bit sort of the revival of Main Street as compared to the mall. And I think that also gets back to the balance sheet where you really have to be nimble, I think, to be able to adjust for all these things. And a lot of, a lot of Simon's results or a lot of their debt is mortgage debt and you know either you sell the property you give the key back and give up on the mortgage or like there's not there's not a ton of flexibility built into their balance sheet beyond that credit facility which again is sort of a break in case of emergency and let me jump in here because i really i looked at they have a in the 10k a mortgage and unsecured debt summary and it shows the changes in their mortgagements, mortgagements, in the changes in their mortgagements, changes in their mortgages. And 2016, new loan origination exceeded loan retirements. 2017, new loan origination exceeded loan retirements. So I think that means that all else equal, they're taking on more debt. And that to me seems like a sign of confidence. 2018, that flipped. So from 11 billion down to 7.9 billion in new loan originations. And for the first time, they actually retired more debt than they took on. So when you're talking about kind of strategically managing your balance sheet, to me, this, if I'm just looking at how they're handling their aggregate debt, I'm concerned that they may actually already be management may already be signaling through those actions that they're not as confident potentially as Julian's article sort of seems to suggest. They're already sort of tightening their belts is what I get from that, that look. So I don't see the perpetual steady growth story as necessarily playing out. That's a bit of a concern to me. One of the things I think is interesting about REITs, having invested in a few, and maybe we'll get into one specifically related to this story, but and don't own any right now, but is that they're sort of, 
it's same way as banks to some degree. They're sort of plays on other sectors. Uh, REITs, it's more obvious. Banks, sometimes they'll have exposure to a specific sector. But in REITs, you, you're talking about you have office REITs, you have industrial REITs, you have hotel REITs, you have apartment REITs, you have mall REITs, right? Let's just stop there for a second. And, you know, there's some similarities in how they run their business. They're essentially borrowing via mortgage debt to then rent out in the short term and hope that they can continue to catch a spread between the mortgage payments that they make and the rent that they make from their clients. And that's all well and good. But I think in REITs, especially the non-diversified ones like Simon, you're really, you're, you have to, you can't just talk about the real estate. You do have to have that fundamental view of the underlying, uh, sector and what's going on with the sector and that sort of through through exposure. And that's something that I've made the mistake of not doing in the past. And I think that's also, I, I think we, we're not at a conclusion yet, but I think you can make the case that if you have, if you believe in retail exposure, Simon is your way to get it. Maybe like I can see that argument versus owning an actual retailer or whatever else, but I think you really, I think we need a fuller case of why retail is going to play out for this to make sense. Yeah. And all this, all of this for a 5% dividend yield on the common equity of a highly levered REIT that the market has some concerns about. When we, you know, if you're anchoring on the dividend yield, that's the best valuation metric. I'm just, I'm coming down a little bit, like, not really sure. And this is without understanding other elements of the capital structure, like preferred shares and overall. One other thing I wanted to hit is kind of the, we talked about Bloomington and we talked about the sort of 200 properties I did wonder how much room there is to expand geographically. And that wasn't necessarily in Julian's bull thesis, but there's only a couple ways that you can sort of improve. One is to develop new properties or acquire new properties. The other is to raise your rents and there's, really not that much else you can do. I guess you can sort of find operating efficiencies, but for the most part, a mall is a mall. I, I'm a little concerned that there seems to be some fluidity between the kind of capital expenditures that the com company either has to do to maintain what it's got already or must incur to generate this growth, which has to come from somewhere and the security of the dividend. And so I want to highlight kind of your lever, there may be a slowdown. I'm not sure necessarily that there's going to be all this cash available to do things like repurchase shares or make growth investments in a situation where money gets tight. And I think to his credit, Julian <laughs> mentions in the risk section that this stock could easily drop 50% if he's wrong and something bad is going to happen. So credit is due there that he seems to acknowledge the risk. But that brings me back to this, all that for a 5% yield, I'm not really so sure. Can I use this moment to to maybe de debut something we've kicked around for a while and then also go into something else that I think is relevant to the story here as far as REITs go? You're being very vague, but I'm I'm excited to I'm excited to hear. I trust you. What is it? Well, with Daniel, I'd like to. It's a theme that you've come up with. The idea, our dreamed of spinoff podcast. Why I'm a bad investor, and I'd like to give an example of why I'm a bad investor uh, related to mall reads to kind of get at some points. I mean, I know many of the reasons that you're a bad investor, but our listeners probably aren't as familiar. So I, I think it's time it's time to share. Daniel Schwartzman, why are you a bad investor? So I'm a bad investor because 2015, I bought shares in 
Washington Prime Group, ticker symbol WPG. Washington Prime Group was a spinoff from Simon Property Group, and it was a stock that was written up on Seeking Alpha. I won't name the author. No need to put their name under the bus. I did my own work for what it was worth. But the author made an interesting case for an underlooked mid-cap spinoff story, unloved, much smaller than Simon Property, all those sort of green blatty special situation things. And I sort of didn't do enough analysis beyond that. I sort of looked at the metrics. I thought it looked compelling. They had recently merged with another mall REIT, Glimpshire Realty, and the stock had sold off. And so I thought, okay, this is an interesting position. And I bought. And I bought somewhere around $16 a share. And at the time, and I still sort of do something similar, I bought half a position at 16. And then as it dropped 5%, I added another quarter of a position and then another 5%, another quarter of a position. And it dropped relatively quickly without, and it seemed just like market noise at the time. The death of the mall wasn't a super common story. There were some specific shenanigans there as far as the Glimpshire Washington Prime Group merger. The Michael Glimpshire, the CEO of Glimpshire Realty, became the CEO. He then got fired. They had changed their name to Washington Glimpshire Realty. They changed their name back to Washington Prime Group. (laughs) What are we going to do? We just fired the Glimpshire. We can't keep that in here. What will get people excited? What's like, they're like, Washington, excellent group. Washington, stupendous group. Washington Prime Prime Group. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That'll right the ship. I love that. Glimpshire, out, Prime, in. Let's get this thing going. And so they and they brought their CEO who came in as an interim but is now still with the company Lou Contorti I think is the name I'm they might be Conforti who's I've not listened to any transcripts but I've read them and he comes off as this sort of salt of the earth we're just going to knock the cover off the ball and you know this is how it is and we're just rolling up our sleeves that type like a lot you can Basically, reading the transcript, it sounds like he's speaking with a cigar between his lips every time he talks. And anyway, the more important part is that they had B and C malls. And this was sort of why Simon spun them off. Simon spun them off as an effort to clean up their portfolio and make them into an A mall only player. And you can imagine that B and C malls in the last five years are not doing so well and are especially exposed to the sorts of pressures that we've been discussing. And the Washington Prime Group portfolio is especially full of the Bloomingtons of the country rather than the exalted- Pentagon City. City. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And what's most frustrating for me and why I'm a bad investor. Okay. So I didn't do enough research, but I'm most frustrated for- two or three things. One is that I had previously invested in Pier 1 Imports, which is something I brought up earlier today, and which just and which then I read Peter Lynch's book. And Peter Lynch, shout out to Peter Lynch, his name seems to haunt this both because he used to always go to Burlington Mall, my hometown mall growing up, but also because he's big into retail. And Pier 1, I feel like, came up in his book, beating the street a couple times, if I'm remembering correctly. And anyway, Pier 1 was a terrible investment in retail, and then I sort of didn't graft onto the WPG investment that it was a similar, that it was exposed to the same things. And then I don't like Pier One, but you know what I do like? The guys that collect Pier One's rent. Now that's how you, that's how you do it. <laughs> I mean, I don't actually know if Washington Prime Group had Pier One. Um, but yeah, but essentially that was the mistake I made. <laughs> Regardless of whether I literally made that mistake or not, I essentially made that You mistake. figuratively made that mistake at least, and possibly at literally. Least, at least figuratively made that mistake. And, and then the other thing was that on Seeking Alpha, and I've written about this recently, you know, in the last year, on Seeking Alpha, these dividend herds will form. And I don't mean that... It's going to sound pejorative, but I know I just mean like a crowd. 
Well, but a crowd forms around a stock. Kinder Morgan has been that in the past. I don't really think it's there right now, but it definitely has been. Um, but, you know, people just love the dividend. And if we're not talking about 3M, for example. 3M is a dividend growth favorite and whatever, but it's not quite the same as these sort of higher yielding companies that get a lot of people behind them. I think I wrote about it with Omega Healthcare in mind, which is another REIT. And we have a very active dividend community. We have a lot of great REIT writers, a lot of great investors in REITs, but also there's there tends to be this, once it gets to the point where there's sort of a battleground over a dividend stock, it usually is a bad sign. And not only did I fall into this, but I was invested in it before it became a dividend battleground. So I really had like, I think that's why I sort of didn't pay attention to that because I know better, but I was like, oh, but I was here first. I had a different thesis before this became attractive for the 10% yield or whatever. So I don't know. So that's why I'm a bad investor, but I I am going to back into this, uh, into our story because I think what's interesting with WPG and I did this again with unity group ticker symbol unit, which I have closed my position finally recently after again, not, not a great job of managing it. But the the issue is that when you go down the cash flow statement, and I talk about cash flow statements a lot on this, and you look at, re, there are a couple misconceptions, I think, around REIT investing generally. And we sort of hinted at this with Kirk Spano too. The Generally, they report funds from operations. Some people report adjusted funds from operations. And they don't generally report net income and often don't make net income. Simons actually does. They make you know $7.65 a share in the last 12 months. So you know an actual PE of 21 is not crazy f- for a REIT. But they REIT investing generally use funds from operations. I pulled the NARIT, the National Association of Real Estate Investment Trusts definition. It's basically net income taking out depreciation and amortization related to real estate, gains and losses from the sale of certain real estate assets, gains and losses from change in control, impairment write-downs of certain real estate assets and investments and entities when the impairment is directly attributable to decreases in the value of the depreciable real estate. So essentially, funds from operations is meant to be net income, add back depreciation and amortization and remove out any changes to the real estate portfolio itself. And are you still with me? Yeah. I, well, I, I think where you're going next is there are some potential problems with that treatment. That's where I'm going. Well, I think it's, I actually think the treatment in and of itself is okay. Again, as with our torturous discussions around, DCF with KMI, like it's all about how you understand and use it. And I think the two big issues are REITs are supposed to pay to qualify for real estate investment trust status. They're supposed to pay 90% of their taxable income as dividends. And the issue that way they avoid paying taxes on their income. But the issue with that is that a lot of people have that fact in mind and then transpose it to the fund from operations or adjusted for funds from operations number when they don't have anything, they have things to do with each other, but they can be very different. And so I think that's problem number one is that I think a lot of investors get kind of stuck on that 90% number. So they take whatever the reported FFO number is as a headline and then say, all right, 90% of this has to come back to me. And so it's covered and I can, I know what I'm going to get. And so I think that's number one, but then I think the other thing which we talk about a lot is CapEx definitely still matters and that is not necessarily in net income. And especially in a case like retail where we're going to need to redevelop and there are questions over the long-term use of real estate, I think you need to factor in CapEx. And so in both WPG and, and Unity Group's case, they had free cash flow, right? They had their operating cash flow was bigger than their CapEx. What they didn't have was any money left over after they paid out a dividend. In fact, they were both net borrowers after they paid out their dividend. And in Simon's case, they're not quite there. They 
they have a $9.45 a share in free cash flow. Their dividend is $8.1 a share. And then you have to throw in a share buyback and preferred shares. You get about 53 cents a share left over on my rough math. I did it for 2018. So that I didn't have to, f- I probably could have done it for tra- trailing 12 months, but I didn't. That's not a lot left over. And so when we're talking about all these headwinds and we're talking about we're not in a 2008 recessionary setting yet, and you're telling me that the dividend coverage along with the share buyback, which was mentioned as a bullish thesis and preferred shares, which come before the common, you have 53 cents a share left over. Like you're not giving me a lot to work with. And so that is, that that's, that's a long way of saying that's where I would be concerned here from an accounting perspective is just not that Simon is on the verge of some disaster, but that they don't have a lot of margin of safety as far as the business itself. Yeah, that gets back to kind of this question of what can they do if things start to go south? And there's, you know, discussion of a buyback. There's a discussion of revamping, uh, acquiring new tenants. All of that is supported by, according to your analysis, a relatively thin cushion. I also, I was looking at the cash flows too, and I kind of stayed at a higher level. But yeah, I noticed, uh, one thing I noticed is that cash flows from financing activities, outflows jumped by like more than doubled, like 134%. So, and cash from operations was 3.7 billion financing activities, 4.5 billion. So there's, again, I go back to this, they're, they're, they're sort of net borrowing is going down. They're retiring debt. And that's not the same story playing out now. I looking at the financial statements, I get a note of caution here from the kind of high level activities that management is undertaking. And, and this is before we've had this information about the retailer's weakness. This is all my numbers are from the 10 K which came out in February. So we already see some signs of, of caution there. And then on top of that, now we have some of these issues seeming to play out. You take, take that into consideration along with a fairly small amount of wiggle room in terms of the cash available to fund operations or distribute to shareholders. And it doesn't, I'm not super confident here. I don't know if I'm negative, but I'm not loving what I'm seeing. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think there is a story here. And I think, for example, it's very possible that Julian talked about 2020 is when they're really going to start seeing benefits from redevelopment. It's possible that Simon redevelops like a champ, they manage to lock in contracts. Redevelop it's possible, Mike. Like a champ. <laughs> <laughs> like a boss, Mike. Come on. When I get and- new tenants, my malls light up like a lamp. <laughs> <laughs> my name is Paul Mall, baby. <laughs> Shout out to Houston. I, we should go to the Houston Simon Properties Group Small if there is one and try and meet Paul Wall. Um, <laughs> We've had some good pop culture references that are all super dated. That's like 2004 Houston slow raps. Shout out to Mike Jones too. We're really far out. So make your final point. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's, you know, I kind of, no, but I I think my point was that this thesis could play out and all credit would go to Julian and to anybody who's along Simon property. And at the same time, I don't think the market has this wrong. I think the market is reasonable to pricing concerns that Simon does not have a growth story, a compelling growth story ahead of them, does not have a great balance sheet and does not have a huge amount of maneuverability without taking away some of these bullish elements, whether it's less money towards redevelopment, whether it's cutting the dividend, whether it's uh, buying back shares. I don't know that what the rabbit out of the hat is that will turn that situation around. And so they could, to use Lou Contorti of Washington Prime Group, they could grind it out and they could manage to get 
get through and be okay. And that's fine. And if that works, again, the credit goes there. But I think the market's bearishness as reflected in the stock being near 52-week lows and trading at a relatively cheap funds from operation multiple, I think it makes sense. I think it's reasonable. And and actually, the last point I'll make is that the market, oftentimes we criticize the market for being very short-term oriented. But in this case, I think it's quite long-term oriented in the sense that Simon Property Group is growing and does have good numbers on the surface right now. The concern is where are they going to be in five years? And I think the market is looking, it seems to me like the market is looking at three to five years from now and not and this year is only clues as to those three to five years. Yep. Totally. The pessimism seems warranted. We're not feeling super contrarian here. So we're not seeing the opportunity, I guess, kind of. But I'm sure that we're going to be in for a serious <laughs> discussion about our views on this. So looking forward to that. If you have any other pop culture related to malls that we should know about, also please let us know because apparently we're we are really attached to our high school mall days. Shout out to Brass Bell, the guitar store where I would go and just try out guitars for like half an hour at a time. Nice. Rest in peace though. See? Gotta be careful. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Their lease was probably not discharged it just dischargeable in bankruptcy either. So watch out. All right. I think we Maybe we should end there, yeah. I think once you have a Paul Wall reference in your podcast, you pretty much have a, another five or ten minutes before you gotta shut it down. So <laughs> I think we All got right. a problem, Houston. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Bloomington. Great lifter pillar song. Uh Hey, I Indiana University. If it's a college town, Hoosiers. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Oh, that's maybe something. that's why. So it's because all the kids don't have any money, and professors don't have money. I mean, I still think they stay in their dorm rooms at this point, but I don't know. We're old. We, don't we are old. Okay. And with that, right. let's get our old butts off the podcast. Talk right. to you later, Daniel. Bye, Mike. Bye. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Idea. We hope you enjoyed this. We had fun recording it and reminiscing on our high school days. If you have any mall REIT stories or bad investor stories, email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com. Leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts if you have the chance. We're interviewing an author about 3M for next week's podcast, so watch for that. Thank you for listening, and see you next week on Behind the Idea.